Hello and welcome to Waste Books, a monthly book club podcast by Waste Division Art Collective and Online Magazine. If you like what you hear on this episode, go ahead and check out our website, waste-division.org, where you can find lots more stuff like this, including uh, fiction, essays, poetry, uh, some visual stuff, comics, and photography, as well as music. Um, We are also on Instagram and Facebook, if you want to check us out there. Oh, and if you wouldn't mind uh, forking over some dough... For this episode, even as little as a dollar would be greatly appreciated. It just helps us out with our operating costs, which we keep pretty low because we work for free, uh, but there's still expenses like uh, paying for broad- broadband. And you can do that over at podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also just Google Waste Division or Waste Books Podcast, and it should pop up, of course. If you do, we'll send you some stickers. Um, we have some kind of cool ones you can check out on wastedivision.org as well. But anyway, without further ado, let's get into this month's discussion of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Waste. 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 Books! Testing. <laughs> Copy. Okay. Heck yeah. Cool. Uh, well, gang. See. Well, gang. We have all our materials. Oh, go for it, Phil. Yeah, if we're all ready, we can all go around and introduce. Oh yeah. Ourselves. Uh, Trick? this is this is Eric out in Eugene, Oregon. This is Phil in Billings, Montana. This is Dan in Bangkok, Thailand. This is Cooper in Humboldt County, California. Hell yeah. <laughs> this is Jordan in Brooklyn, New York. Boo! I mean, yay! <laughs> Just kidding, Jay. Well, hi, boys. Hi. Just strewn about here. All right, gang. Well, today we read Rankin- Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Wreck-It <laughs> Ralph. Funny. We read the novelization Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so we uh, read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, classic horror novel, if uh, that's what you want to call it. Uh, so I guess to start off, this is my second time reading this book. Um, I read it back in college in a British lit class, and I honestly like fell in love with it from the moment I opened it because it's so much different than all of the other like popular culture adaptations people are used to. Mm-hmm. And, like, kind of blew my conception of, like, what it was actually about. Is anyone else? Have, were you guys all? This is all No, I read time? this a couple times in college. Yeah, so I think this is probably my when third I, time reading it. When I was really little, I, uh, I read a illustrated version of a ch- uh, children's book. But uh, that nice. hardly counts. For our purposes here. That's the edition <laughs> I was working yeah, from. Yeah, actually, let's, uh, let's discuss that one instead, Dan. No, it actually, no, to be completely honest, um, it was a lot of the same stuff. Like, I was, even as a kid, I was surprised how different it was than, like, the, the like, the mad pop. scientist heavy, yeah, yeah right, pop, right. Uh, pop culture uh, version of this story. I mean, like, what something I read online is that it's, like, considered the first uh, science fiction novel, but it reads yeah. just like a gothic fiction. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
It's set in that very right, totally. old timey way of being of a story being told where the chunk of the narrative is a retelling of the story to a different person, which is there's a few stories within stories, right? Right, because then the right, whole the right. whole story is being told to Walton, who's then writing the story to his sister. Right. Yeah. And then you have Frankenstein's story being told to, or sorry, the monster story being told to Frankenstein, uh, yeah, being told to the, right. the ship. Mm, and then you also learn of another story about the cottagers that Frankenstein, the monster, lived near. Mm-hmm. Oh, like right. The, right. The monster is telling the story of the cottagers to Frankenstein too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, before we, we before we go any farther, we should yeah. probably uh, do like a basic plot. Yeah. Outline. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I I picked this novel, so I can totally go ahead and do it. Send it. Fucking right. send it. So, basically, we start off on this the Arctic Sea. We're basically it's like uh this dude. What's his name? Ro- Walton. Robert. Richard Walton. Just Walton. R. Walton. I thought it I think was it just uh, says- Roger Dalton. <laughs> Hmm. Nailed it. Uh, terribly forced. Terribly Robert, forced. Robert Plant. <laughs> uh, so actually, it just says R. Walton, I think, at all of the let- end of the letters. Oh, no, it does say Robert Walton. Okay. So basically, he's writing a letter to his sister, Margaret, about being out at sea and trying to, like, <clears throat> traverse this icy landscape. Uh, and he, like, picks up a crew and everything. With the and he's goal telling of... a little bit of his backstory. And then as he gets into a couple, a few more letters... To his uh, sister, because I think it's like a sequence of letters to begin. Um, he comes across an old haggard man on the sea. Or they actually, sorry, before that they see the figure, like a large looming figure, like going across on like sled, dog sled or something across the ice. Mm-hmm. And they're all like really frightened because it's, you know, so big and monstrous. And then they find an old haggard man who they have to pull up onto the boat and that's where we meet Frankenstein for the first time. And uh, he doesn't talk for a while. He's, like, kind of really weak and frail from being out in that landscape. So I think to also contextualize, the boat is, like, in one of those areas where it's, like, landlocked by ice, but it's still in the water. Or, like, the ice freezes around it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we get um, it. And then, I, Yeah. And then after that, uh, basically, we go into Frankenstein's story, where we learn about his, like, growing up in Geneva and being kind of like the son to a really well-respected man in the community and someone who, like, uh, values education a lot. Mm-hmm. And knowledge, I think, is a big theme that we're going to touch on today, I think, for sure. Like, mm-hmm. the power of knowledge. And... Uh, after that, we learn about him going to, uh, was it the university where he becomes obsessed with the idea of reanimating life after his, a death in the family, and then the monster is born in a very brief way, and he never really states exactly how he does it. And yeah, he uh, just kind of it just kind of like ah, uh, I I found the secret and then yeah. applied it. And then he was he he was like I think one of the quotes is. In, in there is, uh, I do not want to tell you guys how I did it for I don't want anyone else to ever make the same mistake I did. And that's how, like, Mary mm-hmm. Shelley rationalized, you know, having to not explain, you know, how you would do something like this. 
Right. Yeah, and but then basically... Also, oh, go ahead. Trick, yeah. you, you kind of uh, dropped a big detail, is when Frankenstein is away at school, his mom takes sick and dies. Oh, sorry. Actually, that's before he leaves for school. You're right. Uh, it's, oh, yeah. It's right... It's like the day he's supposed to leave, she gets sick, or... Because uh, his cousin, Elizabeth, was sick with scarlet fever, and she comes down with it, too, and dies right before he's supposed to go to school. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big, you know, motivator toward his, uh, you know, um, dive into natural philosophy and the weird mystical stuff he starts studying. And just for just then, to point out that Elizabeth is not his real cousin. That's just right, right, right. The term of endearment that Mary Shelley likes to use, apparently, for loved ones. <laughs> totally, totally. She's someone that they like. She, like outside the immediate family, they raised from like a child, basically. Become so after that, he becomes obsessed at school, um, and the monster comes alive. Like I was saying, and then he proceeds to like kill everybody Frankenstein loves, basically. Why though? <laughs> Why? Because Frankenstein immediately like runs away the minute he's created. Is like, oh, I fucked up. Shit. Uh, I don't want to do this anymore. And the monster's like really upset, and the monster becomes uh, a con- like a intelligent being himself, which is I think something that you know every other pop iteration of this never touches on is the monster becoming like an intelligent philosophical being, like wondering about yes. his existence. Yes, very sensitive too. Very yeah, sensitive. really, sensitive. and he, and even good in the beginning too. Yeah, like he has good intentions and he's. Totally, and he's just... He's kind of a big baby. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then he just... So then... Then, um... After some time, the monster, like, escapes, and after some time, uh, Frankenstein is to head... He, he falls ill himself, and he eventually is to head back home to Geneva, but before he heads back home, he hears that his brother has been strangled to death. That's and on the he gets back, there's a whole... What's that? This book is full of, like, really nice coincidences like the day he creates frank the monster he leaves the house in horror and then meets his best friend clerval in the street and then the day that he arrives right, in geneva right. he hears that his brother was just strangled to death mm-hmm. right right it's, <laughs> it's like all these things happen right when like something like good is supposed to happen for him basically he like leaves the house he's like uh the the horror i've created oh hi clerval Hi, friend. <laughs> yeah, I, haven't, I haven't seen you in years. <laughs> so that was actually something that so when I was in college, uh, we read this book with David Gates, um, who you guys know. Yeah. yeah. And he talked about this book as like a reflection on art. So it's like a pretty artificial book. And he was totally. always kind of into the books that were like kind of conspicuously artificial but are so well done that you like kind of get lost and forget how artificial it is because yeah when you step back and point out like hey wait a minute like that is weird that on all these (laughs) right like just happened to happen they happened to occur on just the right time or whatever but Mm -hmm. um then after that uh Oh, he goes back home. They try that other cousin or what, or like handmaiden or whatever, little servant girl. So you missed a piece of news. What's that? That his brother was killed. Yeah, I know. I said that. 
Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so I'll, I'll retract. So his brother was killed. He found out by strangulation. Basically, they it, there was some circumstantial evidence that made the people in town believe it was this girl who worked as like a nurse and like a hand, like a maid and was like someone who they had another young woman that they were raising in the household and they put her to death. I'm pretty sure they found, yeah. they but found a locket in her pocket that belonged to the little boy. Right. That had a picture of his mother. So they just assumed that, and someone had seen him with it that day. And so they assumed that, you know, she was the killer. And, uh, so then, you know, Frankenstein's sure, though, it's the monster. So he's, like, becoming more more lost in his despair and madness. And uh, then they eventually go to Mont Blanc for, like, a getaway. And uh, he meets the monster up on the, I think, one of the, like, near the top of the pass or something. A pass that he's on. on a, like, an icy, snowy path. On a peak. Peak, that- yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where the monster then recounts his story living with the cottagers where he he flees somewhere near Germany because every time he meets people, they freak out and run away. He uh, he even encounters a town where people are throwing rocks at him mm-hmm. and like, uh, you know, yelling at him and chasing him out of town. And so then he like resides in this little cottage in Germany where um, he is. Well, he's not in the cottage, right? No, he sorry. hides out, like, right outside it. Yeah, it's like a little thing attached to the cottage, I'm pretty sure, is what I always yeah, get from I that. I was having trouble picturing it. It's but. like something that's, like, attached to the cottage, but not, like, enclosed within the same room. So he can, like, mm-hmm. spy spy through the boards at the cottagers. It just sounds like it's an abandoned woodshed or, or, or structure. Yeah, like, yeah. Something, something they obviously never look in because they, he's there for months and they never notice. And uh, so basically he kind of uh, creates this fantasy about these codgers wanting to be friends with them and listening to them and learning words as they, as the like father and the son and the brother, a uh, son and the sister uh, all like, you know, read and, uh, you know, go through Talk. their daily lives. The, the monster becomes like filled with knowledge and he listens to them. And then he even, I think at one point gets books himself yeah, and starts reading like it references him reading Paradise Lost, which is a big uh, work that's uh, always referenced in this. Yeah, and then um, and then he become he eventually comes to the conclusion after telling this whole story with the cottagers um, that he want he is lonely. Oh, oh, sorry, I missed a big piece. He goes into the cottage at one point because the old man who lives in the cottage with his kids is blind. So the mm-hmm. old man doesn't realize who, like, what he looks like when he goes into the cottage, and he can sit down and have like a genuine conversation with him until the kids return and freak out. Eric, can we um, zoom this? out a little bit here? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. And, um, and just like get a quicker overview, and then fill in the gaps. Sorry, I just get geeked about this book, and I. Uh... Well, we have about two hours yeah. to get into it. So yeah, yeah, you're right. So basically, <laughs> let me get around to it. Uh, the the to summarize it up. The monster eventually, you know, demand. He eventually just kills everyone Frankenstein loves in a kind of se- uh, sequential fashion because Frankenstein refuses to make him a wife or like yes. a partner. And uh, so it's Frankenstein, you know, basically giving life to this thing and being his own downfall is kind mm-hmm. of the way it ends. Because then he spends the rest of his days chasing it, and we see that on the ship. Yep, yep. and um, then he dies on the ship, right. and then. Uh, the monster's so distraught. Yeah, at the ripe old age of 25, mind you. 
Is that what is that what they said he was? Yeah, yeah, but he's like an old man, right? Because of the the journey and experience, right? Right, and then and then I think the monster says he's gonna go kill himself at the end because he's he doesn't feel better now that his creator is dead, and so you see him like the Walton because it zooms back out to Walton the boat they were on, and you see the monster sail off into the sunset. Yeah, right on a piece of ice. Sorry, so that uh, was my brief summary, guys. <laughs> yeah, I should have specified. Sorry. We should just read the back of the book from now on. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what? Maybe <laughs> you're right. All right. Um, bring it back to the beginning. Yeah. Let's discuss. So, well, what did you guys, did you guys enjoy it? Let's just start out with like general impressions. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was wonderful. Um, written beautifully and it, it goes by really quick. Mm-hmm. I felt like, I mean, I just had a PDF of it on my computer. So, I mean, it was just up on my computer screen. It was, I mean, I brought it to work a couple days and it was, it was easy peasy. Yeah. Yeah. It's short. It's like 150 pages. Yeah. 160 in my edition. Yeah. Um, this was my second time reading it. And I, uh, like I was saying earlier, when I first like picked it up for my class, I, I, I like just fell in love with kind of the narrative. Her narrative style is really good. And very mm-hmm. uh, descriptive, and um, I really loved going back through it. How old was she when she wrote this? Wasn't it like young? Yeah, yeah, she really was young. younger than twenty, which is mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Well, and so the story about this novel is that it was like her Percy Shelley, who was her eventual husband, but not yet at the time. And, They're lovers, though, pretty sure. Right, and then Lord Byron, you know, one of the romantic writers, who's pretty uh, notable. They were like staying in a summer cottage. I well, think, also in Lo- Lord Blanc. Also Lord Byron's physician, which is only important because he essentially created the modern vampire myth. Oh, okay, that's cool. Um, and I think Lord Byron said something to the fact that you know we should all write a ghost story, and that's where this sprung from. Her. Yeah. Yeah, and which I always think is a really cool story. I, yeah, it, it was a stormy night when they came up with this challenge. Right. Who, who could write the best ghost story. And she's the only one that finished it, it sounds like, or, like, took it seriously at all, or where it happened. Any, any Anywhere I read <laughs> about that, you never heard about the results of the other two no. men. Right. So, obviously, they didn't do very well. Or just didn't care that much. I think, I think what it made it sound like in the book is that, like, they were off playing in the mountains, and she was just writing. Yeah, she completed it in 1817 when they were traveling through France. I think after she lost a couple children, too. That's when she finished, like, the final. Oh, wow. Because at 16, wow, what a she... Young, what a young age to go through all that and then write this book. Well, because at 16, she marries Percy. So she ma- she's married to Percy when they go up to Geneva and have the meeting. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, I love her original last name, too. It's Wollstonecraft. Yeah. And her mom was famous, I believe. Yeah. Her mom was a famous, prominent intellectual. The the novel she wrote, her mom wrote, The Vindication of the Rights of Women, is still, like, used to this day as, like, a touchstone in feminist. Proto-feminist. And and, uh, theory and whatnot. Her mom and her dad, respectively, were two huge intellectuals of the time. Right. Except her mom died in childbirth, I think, giving birth to her. So she never was raised by her mom. 
Well, that's going to be that's like the tough thing of trying to break down this book because there is so much tied into it and into her life itself that piecing everything together is is more of like a historical treaty than actually um, just discussing the novel itself. Mm-hmm. Well, we can try. I mean, I think we could go. We don't have to go with the history. I don't think any of us knows enough about their biography to draw out that kind of thing. Well, my my copy had a pretty extensive introduction talking about her life and you know, she ended up just having a bunch of kids with Percy dead and then just having to write for a living. Um but not writing anything as as prominent as Frankenstein. One of her books she wrote, The Lost Man, became a very famous novel about the last surviving member of the human race after the world was wiped out by a plague. I actually I have read that one as well. That was another one we read in that same class, and that one's really good too. That's why, yeah, I heard it's pretty good. She wrote another one called Matilda, which is a novel that deals with father and daughter incest, which is. We okay? Uh oh, Jordan just dipped. <laughs> yeah, he's having audio issues, I think. Okay. Phil, you should reinvite him. It's okay. You can keep going. Anyways, continue, Coop. Oh, I mean, just just breaking down. I mean, Frank and, or Mary Shelley's life was fantastic, and she incorporates so much of her early life and then her parents, um, uh, their their philosophy and theories of life, and then also now then later her husband's, and then also her friend Lord Byron's, into this idea. Like Frankenstein, I believe my copy says the original like 1918 edition had so much more like feminist theory in it. And then in 1831, when she revises the novel, she removes all of that, um, which is which is the copy that we're reading, which which makes it um, right. a really fascinating piece of um, piece of work. Definitely. Whereas, like in the original copy, my my copy says that Elizabeth is sort of like his is Victor Frankenstein's intellectual equal, and they work together on a lot of things. Whereas in the copy mm. that we're reading now, she's just sort of a a docile blonde plaything that he's able to just uh, right. every once in a while pay attention to until her untimely death. Was that? Do you think that was a result <laughs> of her trying to be more realistic with the roles of women at the time, because she was aware of that? Um, like the more realistic role of like the you know wife. No, I in think the house. her her life just kind of took a heartbreaking turn, and I think that was just her way of of coming to terms with it. Rather than rather than attempt to revolutionize the female's role in society, she just was beaten down by life and just sort of found an easier route. Okay. Her her life kind of be is is pretty tragic. Right. Definitely. Well, I think that uh, that is a good segue. I mean, we've been talking, we've mentioned, obviously, some feminist theory and stuff right now. And that essay I sent you guys, which is uh, Possessing Nature, the Female and Frankenstein by Ann K. Meller, which we'll throw links like usual at the bottom of the podcast page. Um, So this one, this, this. What was everybody else's impression of it? Yeah, yeah, we never kind of finished that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, my bad. Like I, I first read this in high school. I, I sort of, I got into like I read Dracula, and then right after reading Dracula, I read, I read this book in high school and and loved it. Then, 
Um, and then in college, I took a class where we had to reread it. So this was my third time reading Frankenstein. Um, and every time I've enjoyed it, this time was a bit tougher for me to get through. I appreciate her writing, but I think I'm I'm really weary of reading gothic literature. Like the turn of phrase and the sentence <laughs> structure is it's just mm-hmm. I, I, it's oft, it's often pedantic, and so it, this time around it was kind of a slog to read. Yeah, it's right. very it's very dense with like words. It's just yeah, pedantic it's and wordy. dense. It's 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 not necessary. There are a lot of it. I just I wanted to edit, which of course Cut was out. presumptuous yeah. of me. To <laughs> wanna... There's some remnants of editions uh, of hers that were unedited by Percy that are apparently a lot heavier and like terser, like. More like modern writing. More of like a modern novel. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So he, I think, as like a romantic poet, like romanticized it and wordified it. and Because you get like, I was noticing like fucking four sentences in a row that are passive. Right. Where, oh, you know, totally. you was, and it's just like, dang, that is not. And, but that just like. Some of that romantic shit is just that way, I think. Jo- yeah. Jordan, so, you know a lot more about romantic shit than I do, but... Well, I wanted to say, when I read the introduction to this, it mentioned the fact that she was so young made it better for... It made it, it facilitated her writing of this because she wasn't as, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but as ingrained in that mm-hmm. kind of paradigm of writing mm-hmm. what you could call pedantic. Mm-hmm. And it... I think it freed up her mind a lot more that she wasn't in it. And the fact that she was a woman too, it gave her a fresh perspective on a lot of things that allowed her to criticize uh, the sublime and, and rationality. And in the introduction that I read, what I was interested in was her even critiquing her husband and his mm-hmm. own thoughts about, you know, understanding how the universe works. And even though he was a romantic and a lot of anti-rational thoughts, he still had, a lot of universal visions about correcting the world, which can sometimes be, I don't know, deleterious to all uh, involved uh, just because of, by virtue of universalizing something, creates it some sort of tyrann- tyranny. It's brutal, yeah. What's your first yeah. impression? Or what was your... What'd you think? Oh, first impression? This is the first time I've read this. It I is? I might be the only one. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I guess I'm the fresh, the fresh one here. Uh, it was great. Uh, it was definitely reading into the feminism parts was the most interesting and the anti-rationality, uh, uh, reading that kind of lens. Uh, I guess I, I like to think of it as like a more heady version of when we read Dracula, Phil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read it with you guys too that summer. Oh, you did, that's damn. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, reading Dracula, that's I think that's the only other gothic gothic novel that I've read, and I can see now in retrospect why Dracula was so sensational because that Dracula is so much more ironically now uh, action heavy or more active. Totally, a lot more substance in general. Uh, su- substance like on a superficial well, level. I mean, as far as like length of books, this, right, this seems right. to be more interested in ideas than uh, Dracula, but Dracula. Dracula was like a blockbuster compared to this being kind of 
and literally a series of letters. Though both uh, incredibly sexual so, and homoerotic yeah. novels. I think so, yeah. It talks about <laughs> Frankenstein being uh, a homoerotic relationship between Frankenstein and his monster. And, and him and Clerval. Self-love. Self and Clerval, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. So, first impressions, I really enjoyed it. I I won't... I have the same um, feelings that you guys have about it being a, a little... Um, pedantic or roundabout in its language and not being direct enough at times, but that just comes with the territory, I suppose. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I liked how it ended. Uh, and I really liked, I really, really liked the framing with, is it, is it Walton? Yeah. How his expedition to the North mirrored or paralleled Frankenstein's own quest for some kind of absolute knowledge. Yes. Right, yeah. That was really interesting. And he, like, learned from the story to do differently, and he probably said... And then that's the why he turned... Time. They turned south and leave at the end. Yes. Instead of continuing north like he originally wanted to. Yeah, he probably... He very well could have killed everyone if he hadn't found Frankenstein. Yeah. Right. So... It, also, it just brings it home... And it brings it makes it brings home more realistic notions of discovery too, because it might not be that plausible to to reinvigorate a corpse, but it is plausible to go on these scientific or expeditionary uh, adventures that can be more harmful than good for like, individuals on a real basis, like a lived basis. Right, and that was something that was pretty popular at the time: exploratory journeys. Yeah, for another hundred years, really, more than right. That. So that's me. That's awesome. I'm glad that we finally had a book that's your first time reading for fuck's sake. <laughs> oh, there's been a few. There's been a lot, but I know I'm yeah. just fucking with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I th I talked a little bit about my history with it, but this was my second or third time through, maybe like two and a half. Um, it was fun. I was really taken with the monster's story. Of like, what happened after Fra he just ran away from Frankenstein? Um, I think there's a really cool. Like it gives you a totally different perspective on humans. You know, watching this like semi-human look in from the outside and like describe, like he talks about. He doesn't even realize what they're doing when they talk at first. Like, they're just making noise. And right. then he realizes that they're, like, changing things about each other as they make this noise. And it becomes apparent that it's, like, a kind of language. Um, yeah, because he recognizes certain words after, like, being there long enough. Like, their names, what they call each other. Right, right, right. Exactly. He picks up on super basic stuff. And then there's, like, times for entertainment when the young boy or the young man will like read, read aloud. And he's like, this is different when, than when they're talking to each other because like, he's just in a monotone, like talking alone. Um, so then he comes to realize that like, Oh, they're looking at this page and they're seeing these symbols and like getting their language from that. So he ends up just having a really unique perspective on like how we, what we do and, it's really kind of a beautiful view, too. He talks about, like, 
how lucky these people are to have each other and how they like just them interacting and smiling at each other and laughing is like a, a gift. And he notices that like they're sad a lot of the time because um, they're poor. We come to find out that they're um, exiled from France, right? Yeah. Paris. Yeah. Um, they were mixed up with. They're helping some a Turkish guy like escape prison for something. Yeah, a, a Turkish Turkish businessman was put in prison. Right. And they had just... a, and he'd offered his daughter or whatever. And really quick, something on that that I thought was funny was um, what did that yeah the the Turkish daughter what is her Sa- Safi Safi, so uh, mm-hmm. she was all right. What I loved about that was. Her dad was a uh, Turkish Mohammedan, which you know now we would call a Muslim, of course. Right. And uh, mm. he like what well, he doesn't they they go to help him out, and then he realizes that the young man wants to get with the daughter, so he kind of like double crosses him and like turns him into the police. And uh, I love that. Right, so it talks about the dad as a Muslim, but like Safi is like a Christian, like they right because her mother about, was. Right, and then uh, I, what I loved about this was, and I don't know what you guys make of it, but it's like, like she wanted to stay in the West where, and I quote, women could take a rank in society, which is, I mean, that's like laughable to think that that was written in 1816, mm. like when but women it, were basically like just put on, you know, like, like, like an ornament. Mm. Totally, basically. and I think maybe that speaks to how bad it was in like Eastern Europe compared or how to like, bad they made it out to be in right Eastern Europe maybe the perception or like yeah. you know maybe Mary that's Mary Shelley's perception of like Britain and like how they treat women is way better no but I'm saying that like you could also point that out as a distraction from like how you don't actually have any rights either like you just have less like, you right. still have a shit situation in Britain if you're a woman, but it's not as shit as it might be in it, Asia or wherever. Turkey or... Yeah. Some oriental place, you know? <laughs> I just read this as, I mean, a very definitive difference between the two families she creates here, um, where Frankenstein's family is very much dictated by the, the, the times where the women stay inside and out of society, taking care of the house or nursing children... Or in Justine's instance, work as like an actual servant in the house, um, compared to the I think they're called the Delacys is their last name, the Delacy family. Every, everybody it works according to his or her strengths. You know, she's out collecting wood just like everybody else. Uh, they're and, and like their names are like super. I got this from one of the articles, but you know, Felix obviously is for happiness. Uh, Safi, which is yeah. like Greek for Sophie, which means wisdom. Um, like this is a very obvious, like quintessential, like this is the family that she wants to model her, her world after. And it's like the perfect setting for Frankenstein to learn human virtue is in this like selfless family unit where mm-hmm. they are. I mean, Safi does have a much different life than Elizabeth or Justine. Um, just as far as like women in the family and their roles, she really, she, she is free in the sense, despite being poor. More free than the other women. Oh, well, and they're from an aristocratic background too, right? What's that? So she's maybe they're from an aristocratic background. They're not. They weren't poor, and I. Well, I guess Frankenstein too is from an aristocratic background. 
Yeah, the family was originally, but then after they got exiled, they had to be poor because they were. Yeah, yeah. And the like the fucking boonies in Germany. Do you guys remember what hard Frankenstein times read? Hard times. Uh, Paradise Lost and Virgil and uh, yeah, Paradise Lost yeah. and Virgil. Gerta. And there was one. Gerta. Really? Yeah. Werther. Okay. Okay. Sorrows of Werther. Werther. Okay. And Plutarch's Lives and yeah, Paradise yeah. Lost. Those are the three books he reads. Yeah, it's cool. He's like always quoting Paradise Lost. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And she she even references it more times than just that. Yeah. All those oh, yeah. all those romantic dudes were obsessed with that book. If yeah. I'm if I understand correctly, you got you guys know a lot more about that than I do. I mean, I read I read Paradise Lost pretty soon after it came out here, just for shits and giggles. But uh, you know, I didn't read oh, it in you the could class probably... setting. Yeah, and I didn't read all of it in a class setting. We it was just in a like intro class. So yeah, we just read excerpts. Yeah. So Same. you probably have a better experience with it than I than any of us, maybe Dan. Oh wow. The novel opens no, with a Paradise it. Lost quote. The novel of Frankenstein opens with, with a passage yeah, from you Paradise read that? Lost. Yeah, it's uh, did I request thee, Maker, from my clay to mold me, man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Um, yeah, which is sort of Adam's uh, questioning of his own existence and 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 questioning the right. idea of of Maker verse or or Creator versus uh, the it his him you know him versus Creator. Well, and there's that part where the monster is reading the text and talking about has himself as Adam. Sometimes he sees himself as Adam, but sometimes he sees himself as the devil because he can uh, relate with both of their strifes. And I thought that was kind of, you know, uh, some cool. Plutarch's Lives is a fantastic novel for him to read. Oh, right. Yeah, not Virgil. Plutarch. No, it's Plutarch's Lives. Yeah, which is great. Just comparing famous Greek and Roman men to each other. And then also, I thought it was interesting that she chose The Sorrows of Werther, which at the time was a very famous book by Goeth, if I remember correctly. Gerda. Gerda, yeah. Um. But what I love about the history of it, when it was published, it like created a, like a, a series of suicides across Germany. Really? Because the young man, the young man, like the stories about these young, like the young man Werther, who the whole book is like lamenting about unrequited love from the girl whose name I escapes me. Is so at the end of the novel, he kills himself, and so throughout Germany and Europe, they would find men dressed in like the 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 fashion of Werther, which I guess he wore like yellow pants and like a blue top coat. Um, and they found them dressed like Werther mm. and they would, and they, they killed themselves. It was like a sensational rash of suicides. Hmm. Damn. Yeah. So he knew about suicide. See, yeah. So what's sweet about that intro quote is it's super metal where it's like, yeah, really, <laughs> it's really doomy. It's like, why the Ooh. fuck? Like, I always think of Gnostic, Gnosticism, and, like, that kind of dark Christianity or whatever. Where right. it's, like, the, the world is actually really evil and mean. And it is mean to the monster. Like, when he tells us his story, and something that's kind of a good point, I think, to point out in this book is that the monster is ugly. And that's principally its main problem. It's like, right. The only the reason, uggo. yeah, the only reason people like all its problems and it's the reason it wants to now take revenge against all of humanity is because it's ugly and humans mistreat him because it's ugly. 
even so, he himself finds himself oh. ugly when he looks at that pool he realizes like dear god i am hideous it's not it's, it's not like, like damn but he's doing exist. that on human standards and he recognizes that which is why he wants to have a partner i right? think he's just hideous beyond right. even human standards i don't think he can like find love of himself you think he's just hideous yeah of course he has like thin straight black lips Watery, yellow, shallow eyes, a pinched infant-like right. face. It's eight feet tall. The skin doesn't even cover all well, the muscles or blood vessels. Like this thing is. <laughs> yeah. There's, also, there's an also an ambiguity, uh, an ambiguity about what kind of uh, parts he's made from because it just stated that his like laboratory was next to a butcher house. Yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah. And well, and like I think maybe even like insinuated that even like some animal parts were probably in him as well. Yeah, yeah. So one of my favorite things is one of my favorite things is how uh, <laughs> like ragtag the operation is <laughs> with like and how dirty and nasty it is. Like he doesn't go into great detail about it, but he references um, like going and digging up graves or like stealing corpses and like fucking around with them to figure out how to put them together and then. However, to spark it is how they do it in the movies. But um, so I I like that. Like he had to do some whack shit, and he talks about like um, like desecrating the human body, but like kind of doing it for science and um, but really for glory was his thing, right? But anyway, uh, and as as far as tying that in to utility, it mentions in that essay, Eric, that you posted the feminist one. How he made it so large because it was it was just easier and it made it he didn't have to do these little movements when he made the whole uh, monster or man. So because uh, he had to be he had to be utilitarian about it, he created this thing and because of the utilitarian uh, form of it, they didn't have any qualities of, of beauty or any aesthetic mm. merit, quote unquote. That's what creates him and. Uh, I don't. I'm not innately, but perceived to be hideous, and because of that utility and not an appreciation for form, I think it creates something that's despised. In the same way that all these systems don't really have appreciation of form, and they're just pure utility, pure utility, pure rationality, uh, pure uh, systematizing, and mm. they end up being. Uh, toxic to the world that they're around not to say that frankenstein's monster is toxic but perceived to be so i think he's inherently like an abomination against nature it it works that he is so hideous it's it's man stripping from woman the ability to create life that is so abhorrently against like the what is what is natural and right and like right and like the capital r sense not like right and wrong but he he is like He's like, what is, I mean, there's a lot of Prometheus and, and um, qualities to Victor Frankenstein, and he's just like stripping from the womb the ability to create life. So, of course, this creature is going to be like abomination against nature. Right. And that's one of the big things that essay talks about, too, is like Victor Frankenstein is a male usurping the female's ability to be the sole creator of life. And now he's been able to basically take that ability and, you know, but like you're saying, because it's not natural, the creature turns out to be something that does not look pleasing or like you're saying, right. 
Oh, it's corrupted. Core sensibilities. Right. The monster is corrupted by um, Victor Frankenstein's hubris. Like, by his right. by his choice to usurp nature, the creature has to then live with that. Yeah. Fucking asshole. For real. He is. He's a, he's a terrible man. Like, he's what? a terrible, Seriously? terrible human being. I throughout this throughout <laughs> reading it, I can't. I found myself being like, this guy is just like an irresponsible, selfish little shit. And dude, even I know he might be really fucking ugly, but like he's like, come on, man, just listen to my story. And he's like, no, no, I will not, you fucking foul creature, demon. He always calls it. His real downfall was not creating the female version for him. And that's what that's what made the monster promise that like he made that very legendary promise like I will be with you on your wedding night. Um, you will not you, know, you will not I, rest. I have a couple things to say on on that point that uh, they were when I, I read all that the same uh, like at the same time basically same sitting, and I, I thought all right so Frankenstein is uh, touring Europe with Clerval right and that's when he. He decides to take like a month or two off and go by himself and build this wife for the monster. Right. And so he what is it go he's like, Oh, I went somewhere near the coast. He was on an and island. And I got myself Right, okay, right, yeah, he's on an island. He's In Scotland. Like, I got myself a makeshift laboratory. And then all of a sudden it's just like, Oh yep, and then I had this woman that I nearly made and it's like it never says anything about where the woman's yeah. corpse came from. There's like right. At least with the with the <laughs> monster, like he, at least he says, you know, like Mary Shelley says, like, oh well, you know, I was next to, you know, like oh, I, I went and dug up graves and all all this other stuff. Like, there's at least a little bit of an explanation given to like how he came across these body parts. But for like the the wife, it's just like, ah, oh, yep, my work was laid bare before me. We could right. safely assume I he used the same techniques as he did with the monster. To acquire the parts. Yeah, we're just supposed to assume that he's just digging up graves wherever he goes. Yeah. He's, there's, there's some graves here. I'll make a laboratory. But, uh, and then also, so, on that point, um, so, like, where the fuck does the women's corpse come from? Uh, assuming, anyway, we can just assume from where the other one came from. But Frankenstein gets really worried about them reproducing yeah, and I'm not. I'm not sure how that. Like, all right. So let's just let's just. And maybe I'm like thinking about talk it too about harder. That. So okay, you you create two people from dead matter. Like, are they going to be fertile? Oh, you you wouldn't think so. No, that's no. Well, and then the thing is, is it? Well, no. And then is it another species? Like, like wouldn't it just be a like? Okay, if they have a baby, is it just a human? If they can. It's a great like, it's just question. It's really strange. It's yeah. really, really weird. Well, it just shows how so, how mad he is. So, and that's what gives it like a sci-fi thing, mm. you know? And also just like how delirious and all of his anxiety and, and broken nerves. I mean, he fears much more for her. But yeah, one of his fears is that they will propagate and create another race that will be the downfall of man. Which even like, I think even a reader at that time can realize like that would never work. They're not like he didn't. Well, he didn't put right. functioning. I, I do think there's a bigger question about, about that, that though. though. Like, because the the monster ends up having uh, Frankenstein's journal, um, and it talks about like the forty days before he was created, and it, it's in like he says it's in big, like gross detail about like how he did it. Um, so I was kind of wondering if because. 
this is always kind of an interesting thing to think about with regards to like uh, artificial intelligence and that sort of thing. Like, because artificial intelligence is us in cre- creating something that resembles life, you know, and like it's sort of strange how the monster resembles a life form because he's like, like Cooper said, he's an abomination. Like, there's something highly, highly artificial about him that is like, like nothing else. But, and so, and artificial intelligence is the same thing. But, um, I, well, it was with regards to their reproducing. Like, because the worry with artificial intelligence is that it someday could just take the reins on its own and, and make its own um, cohorts. And I don't, oh, right. like, there's reason to believe. Smart, yeah, smart yeah. Build. It's almost, right. Like, yeah. I mean, look how smart. Actually, that's kind of an interesting point is that the monster really is superior to humans in a lot of ways. Well, he, like, can, he can, like, leap up mountainsides is what they said. He can, like, literally, like, bound and leap feet into the air. Yeah, yeah. And he's smart. Like, obviously, he learned how to read. Like, he learned the English language and he learned what language is oh, no, and English. French. Sorry. It's actually French. Right. He learned what language is and then he learned French and then he learned how to read and he's reading Paradise Lost in a year. You know, like... What's to say this guy couldn't go to Frankenstein's journals and read a bunch about, like, the kind of shit that Frankenstein was reading and make a similar breakthrough? I see what you're saying. In that context, like, that totally is, like, a frightening thought. Mm -hmm. Or that could, like, that, you know, in Frankenstein's position would be worrisome. Right. I mean, already it's caused, like, unimaginable harm, you know? Well, everybody... Yeah. Well, that's only after he destroys the female he was working on. Right, right, right. Talking more about his other fears for the female monster uh, are very philosophical. You know, the idea of, like, will she, once created, keep the contract that was made before she was born, which is the one that Mm -hmm. the monster made, which is, if you make me a female, we'll go to South America together and hide and never be seen by any humans again. And so his fears, right, like they're speaking for the female already, right? He, his fears are very Rousseauian, like social contract fear of like, how will I know that she will uphold the contract that she did not make, but was instead made for her? Because when she comes to life, will she go through the same thing of like, well, so you just created me to be this person, this thing's partner, and you just expect me to do what I, you say? Just the same thing as like the monster had, you know, like. Why do you detest me when you created me? It's kind of a similar vein. I love reading totally. too the the homoerotic element of it, in which he like with fervor and like excitement he created this giant man, though with like a nervous anxiety <laughs> he didn't even finish the giant female, and he instead like <laughs> tore it apart passionately. You know, str- you know he came into the room mm-hmm. and saw the body strewn across after he just destroyed it with this insane, crazy lust. And just was terrified at the wreck he had caused, like, but he was perfectly fine creating this ginormous man. And then he was able to go hang out with oh, yeah. his his best friend Clerval, who are friends forever. <laughs> just some just some boy love. Well, there's a lot of sexuality in this, like his dream of holding Elizabeth, and then she turns into the rotting corpse of his mother. That's some fucked up sexuality. Oh, that's right. right that's there. one of the. That's like a dream sequence he has at yeah. one point. As he's creating the monster initially. Right. Now, well, one thing I loved here uh, was like to go back to like how silly Frankenstein and like weak as a character is. Like so, 
Like what? Like from the from the moment he creates the monster, like as soon as the monster becomes alive, he runs away, sees Clearville, and is like, "Oh, g'day, what's up?" And like goes with him. But he like <laughs> he avoids his apartment. So the monster at one point gets into his apartment. He avoids his apartment for like I don't know. Is it's at least days? Yeah, I think it's multiple days. Which is just yeah, it's just like irresponsible, and. <laughs> Like, he doesn't see him for years, and all of a sudden he finds out his brother's dead, and then then it's like, oh, oh, and, like, there's many times where he's like, I had nearly forgot about my abomination. Right. And then he, like, and sees like, him somewhere randomly. Yeah, and then he finds out, like, he's on the loose, and then it's, oh, my heart was filled with fear, and I was I was bedridden for weeks. And it's just, like, like just a lack of, like, taking responsibility for your own actions. Mm. And, like, what, what I loved is, like, so... Um, the part when okay, so he he ruins the the Frankenstein's potential wife, and the monster says, "I'm gonna be with you on your wedding night," and immediately Frankenstein is like, "Like oh no, Elizabeth will be alone now." Like, it, like it, the thought doesn't even cross him that he's gonna kill his wife Why? instead mm-hmm. of him. Like, and do you know just do tit for tat? Like right. he's just oh my poor Elizabeth will have to live alone. And fend for herself while I'm dead. Mm-hmm. And it's just selfish. Like, it's just everything. Like, he's like, how, how could I have known that the brute would have done something so evil? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, it's uh, I don't know. It's just like, he's a, that's, extru- that's interesting that he doesn't think that it's, yeah, like, he just immediately thinks it's coming after him. Yeah, he's extremely selfish and self Egocentric, too. Yeah. And that was something that feminist article talked about with, like, how like his loving family back home that he like he never like while he was pursuing this like grand dream of reanimating life like never even he barely even gives him a thought. You know, I think uh, I was thinking it was a lot of it was fueled by his mother's death. Oh yeah, I think absolutely. because uh, like the you know he was seventeen leaving to college, like someone who was like dear to him dies, and then he's at the same time getting into like outdated like. Uh, black magic slash philosophy, like uh, like even like people were referencing to him, his father and his professors. You know that these books that he was reading were like a thousand years out of date, but he was so interested in the like magical element of them. Because I think you know, at such a young tender age, seeing a family member die, that probably just you know affected him quite a bit. There was an interesting aspect about his perception of her death. Oh, it was hot as fuck. <laughs> it was. It was sexy. Like, she's, like, draped across the bed. The monster's just up above her, and she's just, like, sort of fearful, but also sort of lust, like lusting, and he's just, like, being cuckolded uh, by the yeah. monster he created. <laughs> Cooper, you're you're a sexy guy. This is a sexy <laughs> book. Mary was nineteen. Of course, there's going to be some weird sexuality in here. <laughs> it's a pretty good point. It's the hormones. It's the it's like the the very first um, beta male is Victor Hugo right here, cuck to the max. So the hormone <laughs> monster was the real first monster. Yeah, right, right. It's a stand-in for hormonal urges. Jesus. <laughs> Okay, um, um, I have a, something we could segue into, guys. This is something we've talked at length. Is this a new segment? New segment. Changing right, segment. Right now. Um, so, something we've talked at length about, I think we've touched on, is 
the monster being intelligence, which um, in one of those essays uh, that I sent you guys, the Frankenstein in film, uh, and part of it, it references the stark difference between the way Frankenstein is portrayed in films compared to, you know, the source material. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that it always neglects <coughs> is the intelligence of the monster and the ability to perceive who he is or trying to perceive what he is, what it is. And so uh, what do you guys think about that aspect, like the monster's intelligence and ability compared to like the movie adaptations that are may basically make it a dumb monster, so it's more black and white who is like the bad and good? Right. It's very ironic because the point I think of Mary Shelley was yes. to show people that you're supposed to be sympathetic to these things uh, and be more and, careful with your fucking actions. <laughs> yeah. And I know that Adam Smith wrote a book called The Sentiment of Morality. Damn it. That was really influential at the time. The Theory of Moral Sentiments. That was huge in the Enlightenment and huge in the Romantic era. Oh, we took a class this last fall about the transatlanticism about the 19th century, and the entire class was just about this one book about how important sympathy was for the Victorians and the Romantics. And all these film depictions are basically reversing the entire thing and creating this difficult-to-sympathize character Mm -hmm. and just accepting that you can't sympathize with it and that it has to be destroyed and that our established values must be maintained and our notions of beauty. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I I think it's... it. Mary Shelley accidentally created a monster which further reinforced people's... <laughs> Zing! Uh, yeah. Their, their, their hatred of the other. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. Was he trying? Was he trying to create a super being? I thought he was just trying. Yeah, to he talks. A... Well, it was just because if he made it's just too, it was just easier to make it it's easier to work with. Yeah, right, right. But I mean, but you, he also probably understands that making a being with bigger dimensions probably could possibly yes. mean certain physical attributes. Or I don't think we can assume that. Yeah. I don't think he ever explicitly. I or think anything. we can assume that. Yeah, but there's not a lot of explicitness in this book anyways with like that into that regards like of what the monster's actually made of or like I think he just was creating life. I don't think he was trying to create like a super soldier. Yeah, I think he could just see if he could get away with it. I mean, he's pretty explicit about his intentions. So, I'm I think he just wanted to create a being and like if he could do that, then I think he's on par for the course. Yeah, he just he wanted fame. He was a very prideful man. He wanted to change the history of science and the natural world as we know it. I don't think he's like an evil scientist who wanted to create a Superman. Well, I don't think he wanted to create Superman for the being. I I mean, I was just saying because of the stature, he was creating like a superhuman-sized being. I mean, clearly he wasn't even Maybe thinking beyond. Maybe he could have unconsciously. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's always the subconscious we can. Cooper, maybe he just wanted one with a bigger dick. <laughs> I mean, that's implied. Yeah, there you go. Obviously. Back to that homoeroticism. Yeah. It is implied. I think he was creating an army of super beings to take over Europe. 
<laughs> oh shit. He had just for, he had just totally forgotten. He's a cuck. Uh, yeah, God dang. <laughs> he clearly, I mean, with the fear with with the creation coming to life and his reaction to it, I mean, he had forgotten completely that what he was doing was creating another entity. He was just so yeah. prideful and ambitious. Totally. That it, he wanted to see any kind of movement. Like I bet he would have he was even hoping for like a movement of limb or anything. It's it seem assume it seems by his like fervor. It's a very childish desire just to like to do something for the sake of doing it. And in this case it was for to change the natural world, to do to 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 change the face of science, to be remembered forever. You know, there's several parts where he talks about the idea that if his experiment is successful, the experiment in this case is reanimating uh, inanimate objects, um, then the then he will be remembered forever. Um, so that the, I don't think there's any he he'd forgotten that what was going to be created was a was a was a, a conscious being. So you think the the intelligence of the monster kind of bringing it back to what we were talking about back around is makes the monster more sympathetic to you guys oh yeah mm-hmm because I definitely like sympathize with the monster the most oh yeah he's very reasonable he, 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 he's willing to just uh, seclude himself from the rest of humanity for the rest of his life which as we we don't we're not sure if he's immortal and immortal being but just based on his actions and what we've learned from him you can assume that he's truthful in the fact that he would in fact remove himself from humanity Um We've seen, as we've, what we've seen from him, he could become a sort of super soldier if we're going to continue with this idea of him being a superman. <laughs> but he could. I mean, he's a rational thinking, intelligent being who's also incredibly strong. Um, he could subjugate these lowly humans who have, you know, um, only caused him pain and misery. But instead, he just chooses to seclude himself forever. And in fact, at the end of the book, he chooses to, we never see his actual death, but he promises Walter that he will... Or Walton that he will he will kill himself. He says that he's found no happiness in the destruction of his creator, and that because that's his soul bent in life, there's no happiness for him in this world, and he must just end himself. Damn, that's that's heavy, bro. Well, that's Frankenstein's monster for you. Yeah, it's heavy as fuck. It's funny how he differs from Adam as well because he's a modern Prometheus, meaning he's someone who. No, oh, I suppose maybe it is pretty similar. They defied the gods and they were punished for it, but he defeats his god though. Right, but so. he's not—he's not happy about it. At no. the end, he kind of almost resent, uh, regrets it. Yeah, he's just all the more alone. He no—he no longer has a something to you know, galvanize him to live. Right, no even pun intended. He doesn't even have he right like Frankenstein. Even though he detested his monster. That the monster still had that connection to his creator because he created him, you know. Yeah, and when you guys are talking about um, coincidences with the simultaneous uh, appearance of Frankenstein and the monster at certain instances in the book, it seemed you could read this from a psychological perspective as if Frankenstein's monster was a part of him. Uh, I don't really know how to how far to go with that, but how symbolically those were things that were happening in Frankenstein's mind at the same time, or they were present at the same time. They're always present or like that side of him is always present. 
I, I don't really know how far to go with that. But we'd have to believe that because the idea that he's usurping women's ability to create child. I mean, when a woman gives birth to a child, she's 50% of the genetic makeup of her of their mother and father. So we have to assume like, okay, so is is that is is Victor Frankenstein completely removed from his creation because he's not sharing genetic material? But also, what do they say about artists when they like create paintings? They they tend to paint the likenesses of themselves even when they're painting other people. So can we assume that the monster kind of looks mm-hmm. like Victor Frankenstein, or is there no connection whatsoever, which furthers his fear of the monster? The fact that he can find no recognizable self in his creation does that play another part in him turning away from the monster? I think it's more likely that he lo- he would look at the monster and see beyond the ugly, like just the surface level ugliness that, you know, kind of distinguishes them and then see to where, like he fucked up with the monster. But his reaction is also very, his reaction is very uh, typical to women who experience post-modern or post, um, oh shit, what, what is Postpartum depression. Yeah. You know, like the the depression that follows after all the chemical changes and giving birth to a child. I mean, when we first meet the monster, his face is described as being very infant-like. You know, small, pinched red face, these thin, watery eyes. This is and Mary Shelley at this point has given birth to, I believe, two children. One in which shortly dies after uh, the publication of Frankenstein, and one that died in childbirth. So she has experience with the idea of being fearful of childbirth, of, of being afraid of your offspring for, you know, postpartum depression is, is a very serious and still unknown thing. But I think it's interesting that she gives those same reactions to a man, to Victor Frankenstein, that a lot of women suffer, do also, like suffer keep with. keep in mind that her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, the famous feminist, was died in childbirth giving birth to Mary Shelley. Mm-hmm. So that might have some guilt, long-lasting, lifelong guilt for being uh, culpable. Totally. In that way. I guess maybe what something that I was talking about earlier as well is that the desire to create in an unnatural way or for a man to create has some sort of destructive impulse behind it and that Frankenstein's monster is the manifestation of that destructive impulse or a death drive maybe mm-hmm. and that he carries that with him everywhere through his use of rationality and sort of a abhorrent creation and that he in a way is responsible for all these people dying even though his intentions are good because they're unnatural uh and they're by definition they're unnatural because they uh they create destruction in the attempt to create life maybe that's what how you can define unnatural uh that's uh something we did in the class i read this in she uh, our teacher uh do you ever have economides jordan or phil no. no, I've seen the name. I saw the name. In the I wanted show. to have her, actually. She was really good. I took the romantics class with her. But what she did, she has split into groups in class. And we it was like we were doing a mock trial. And we one side had to argue uh, that the monster was at fault for his actions of killing people. Well, the other side was arguing that Victor Frankenstein was at fault because of him his actions creating the monster. Mm-hmm. And so it's that idea of, you know, who really is at fault, the creator or the createe. What was the result of that? Because I feel like that same right. argument could be made for like Jeffrey Dahmer's parents. Is Jeffrey Dahmer totally. responsible that, for it, or is Jeffrey Dahmer's right. parents responsible for his actions? And and that was hard. And that was the harder argument. I think was arguing for Frankenstein being the at fault for those physical murders, 
But the idea is that he is at fault because he was creating something that was an abomination and unnatural. And so the the consequences were going to, you know, be unknown to him as well. He has no idea what he's doing. So that's kind of irresponsible of him. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that was just the argument on that side. So I was just kind of, you know, that was an interesting exercise trying to, you know, rationalize those things because right. we can we can be sympathetic say, towards the monster but at the same time he still like throttled the little boy you know his brother to death he still like broke the neck of of the woman elizabeth uh he still he strangled clerval like he he still is a is a murderer and one of the worst kinds that you know he, he killed these people with his bare hands mm-hmm. so he's like unforgivable well, in that sense right so this is just like an interesting kind of microcosm of how we probably view people. <laughs> like, um, I, well, so like what you're seeing, what you're seeing in the monster Cooper, I'm like saying, like giving him a lot more, uh, leniency for like, I, yeah, like I'll say that he, like right from the get go, Frankenstein, the doctor or the scientist, treats him like he's ugly and an abomination. But there's many examples and, in human history of people being treated the same way. Do you give like do you give Charles Manson that same leeway, even though he was like abandoned by his prostitute mother and never had a father? It's a great question, man. Um, I, and I'm I'm not sure I'm willing to. But can we compare those? Can we compare those two? Because this is so much more supernatural. I think so. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the the idea of like offspring and um, and progenitor, and like whose responsibility is it? It's a it's a very real like nature versus nurture question that we're we're dealing with right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just get um, frustrated because I think it is like hugely Frankenstein's fault that he didn't like get like keep his feet on the ground when the thing came to life not be deterred just by its ugliness um, and, like, take responsibility, um, he could have, you know, like, drastically altered how that went. Um, other Instead, he just, like, let the monster out on its own and it went and learned language and then had this big chip on its shoulder from, like, being made ugly and then not really helped in any way, you know, like, to got adjust. Some, got some daddy issues. Got some big time daddy issues, and I say rightfully so. So, right, but does that excuse his actions? I think Frankenstein was just fucking around for glory and like brought something into the world that he shouldn't have brought into it, and like that's his fault. Like God, that is what happened. But yeah, like who? So that where does responsibility lies? Is Frankenstein's monster completely completely faultless? Does his intelligence and his compassion excuse his murderous ways? Well, it's like he, it's like the opening line says, right? Like, I didn't ask to be brought into this world, basically. Right, which feels to me like no, Adam's right. excuse to then just do what he... It's, it's like a poor man's excuse of, like, I didn't ask for this, therefore I can behave however I want. Word. Yeah, it's a tough question. It seems like a very poor man's cry for, uh, like, removing culpability from his actions. I didn't ask for this, so right. I can do what I want. It's a two-way street, but I think it, I, I am under the school of always stressing the environment mm-hmm. because people as individuals get enough of an onus as it is. 
but but yeah, I, I think that Frankenstein has a little bit of resp- has some responsibility. I won't even say a little bit, but he also Wait, you mean the monster didn't have as what? Sorry, thank you. I knew that was going to happen at some point. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein's monster had an uh, some culpability, but he didn't have any upbringing at all. I mean, he's essentially an orphan. So right. And the only family he like kind of had rejected him, like right in the cottage. Yeah. He tore down their cottage and burned it to the ground like an angry child yeah, who's suffering right. a tantrum. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, because he is, and he is an angry child. Like he shouldn't have been out on his own. This family rejected him, so he took away the only thing that they had. Right. No, but they left, didn't they? Yeah, they ran away, but they're gonna oh, come right, back. It'd be assumed that they would come back. They're hiding in the woods from this monster, but he removes that ability from them when he burns down their only like possessions in the world. I don't think they were coming back. I yeah, I think they were, thought it was haunted at that point. Yeah. Still, okay, so now they're homeless I because that one of guy, him. the son. <laughs> so now they're they just living on the streets because yeah, he decided yeah. to be like, "Hey guys, hey, this is me," and then they just hated him. Which is that his fault? So yeah, was. So who is this? What about society's blame in the thing? Because everybody he meets, without fail, hates him. Well, he's an ugly. We just have shitty beauty standards, man. Yeah, I just feel like that's a lack of sympathy on the part of society. Oh my that's god, what I feel like that's a criticism. Of. He's made from corpses. <laughs> Dude, corpses were people too. Corpses were people too. <laughs> In the old man. One of the biggest taboos in, in in human societies that are across the board are like the desecration of the dead body. That's like a universal taboo. For sure. So these like these ideas that these these lowly humans have such low beauty standards. It's like it's this is an ingrained taboo that is going to be very difficult to remove for the monster. I'm sorry. We look at dead yeah, bodies. Yeah, sounds like they're a, really fucking. They're really fucking shallow. Yes, <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm being an ableist right now, or whatever ist I'm being, by not accepting <laughs> the monster. But that's that was what Mary Shelley was trying to do. Is I mean, I don't know. I don't know. If she was trying to create a paradigm that we were supposed to argue like, do we accept the monster? I think we're universally supposed to be like, have fear and horror towards this thing. At no point should it be accepted. That I. That's and that's the curse of his existence. I I suppose that. Because of Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley's uh, socialist values towards the poor, I, I, I'm under the impression that they are about maximizing sympathy uh, and using this as a case example of can you extend your sympathy to this degree? And I think being a sort of a thought experiment. Uh, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's that. I think that's true, and I think that she's saying that you should sympathize, especially when you realize how rational he really is. But how? Because she, he. She makes sure to make him rational. But also at the same time, she makes him to a mass murderer. Yeah, which is something why it makes it so difficult. Because to me, I, I there there are novels, like African-American novels, about the same thing where society creates an individual, like Richard Wright and, and um, Native Son and Joe Christmas and uh, Light in August, where you have these figures who are created and are seemingly innately uh, destructive. And the author is or the narrator is is using that as an example of well when you treat someone so terribly and they react in terrible ways then whose fault is it so i say it's the chicken's fault (laughs) who is this chicken
Chicken shouldn't have laid the egg. Ah. Goddamn chicken. Yep. I, it's purposely difficult. Okay, well, what about uh, the thought of knowledge as the monster? Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is that, like, and this is during Enlightenment, uh, Frankenstein just kind of gets drunk off of, like, the power of this knowledge that he's learning. Like, to the point where he's, like, like, uh, so sure of his knowledge and his power that he just loses all sight of everything else. Well, he at no point right. stops and asks himself, okay, I can do this. What's actually going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll, I've learned how to do this, but should I, in fact, do this? Right. Totally. And uh, the, also, you know, a lot... A lot of passages in this there's the you see the monster gaining knowledge and this the knowledge actually like hurting him or like you know causing him distress because the more mm. he learns about human society the more he hates his own existence mm-hmm. and so that's like the the monster's monster the monster of the monster frankenstein's monster's monster is learning more about how shitty the world he was made unto is yeah and that he can never be a part of that mm-hmm. i say yeah, good riddance he's a hideous monster god fucking Co- Co- come on sorry at the balance lives matter too I, I have to balance this out because all you guys are just choking on that frankenstein monster's dick <laughs> i gotta oh, I be i gotta be the naysayer over here and be like but wait he murdered like a lot of people but he was so big and dreamy <laughs> uh Monster, monster erotica. This, I mean, like I like I said in the beginning, this is a pretty sexual book. Yeah, just so like she, just she, like Dracula she like was. Pioneered, she pioneered the monster erotica genre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Damn it, this was the fucking yeah. early beginnings of Twilight, guys. Fuck. So it's the first. It's the first science fiction novel, but more importantly. <laughs> It's the first monster erotica story. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, Mary Shelley. I, I was kidding. Well, you're, I mean, come on. Right. Like her, w- one of the last novels she wrote, Matilda, is about a, a daughter and father in an incestuous relationship. So clearly, she was not shy oh, from man. writing about sexual themes in her books. And also, in the first iteration, like the nineteen, the eighteen nineteen edition of the book, Elizabeth and Victor were actual cousins. They were actually related, and then she removed that in the later Thomas copy that she edited, though she re- she kept in a couple cousin references as a term of endearment, which, again, is a very strange way of looking at the word cousin. And the father <laughs> always refers to her as his niece as well. Yeah. And she has, a couple times she's again. written herself in, in her journals that have been published and stuff that she she's sort of saw her relationship with her father as being sort of unhealthy in how she sexualized him at times in her life. So I think there is something to be said about the sexuality in this novel and the conflicting, the conflicting views of, of the monster and, and Frankenstein and Clerval, Elizabeth. Um, I'm not just grasping at straws here. I think it really is in there. Sounds like a big orgy. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of these gothic, not like Dracula, is imbued with an incredible amount of sexuality, both homoerotic and heterosexual. It's, it's full of it, and so... I think that came out before this novel did, so it wouldn't be a surprise that she decided to add in some of her own sexual problems. I definitely 
I was just kidding with you, too. I definitely agree because uh, the romantic era, especially uh, this, you know, this era of writing is very sexual in their like language about nature and like the divine and all of that. You know, it's like it's all kind of harmonious sexuality and nature and, you know, divinity. Yeah, so, yeah, divinity. Sex is cool. Butt plug. <laughs> should, we, should, we, should we do sorry. some? <laughs> sorry, a quick aside. Anyways, uh, I digress. Should we do some final thoughts? Um, thoughts? We, we still are. have like it's, we still have three and a half hours here. to record this, Dan. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Dan. Oh, man. <laughs> no, we 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 can keep going. We we brew yourself we some coffee, going. God damn it, Dan. Dan. You haven't noticed no, that we always no, record no, for at no. least half the day every time we record a podcast. <laughs> and then Phil sits in the edit room for God knows a couple how long. months. Yeah, yeah. Whitt- whittles it down. Whittles it down from half. He has a day to take out all of Dan's that. bullshit. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we can wrap up whenever. If you guys have other thoughts, we could talk about this for a while. I-, I do have a couple of things to say, actually, about the the feminist piece we read. Well, Dan, I was also going to say before you continue that if you needed to like hop off, if you're really tired or whatever, that's perfectly okay, and we can always carry it on to the end without you. I think he's insulting yeah, you, Dan. For sure. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's. Fine. Hey, Dan, you're a piece of shit. That's what he was really there good. We go. at. There it is. Direct. <laughs> like a man. Like a real. Like a real Frankenstein's man. Dan, yeah. this is just the tip of the iceberg of our podcast. Yes. Okay, I was about to bring up iceberg earlier, but I didn't know. Like. Oh no. Leave the iceberg out of this. <laughs> Leave the iceberg out of this. <laughs> <laughs> but also, uh, Frankenstein's monster was literally standing on the tip of an iceberg in this book. So fuck you, right. Dan. You are talking about feminism again. Yes, yes. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I really liked. I mean, the piece was uh, bombastic to say the least. But it was, it was really good. Like I, I enjoyed a lot of what she had to say. Um, well, do we have One a quick reference really to who you're talking with. to? Do you have the the author's name and piece? I don't have it in front of me, but Eric, do you? It's Anne Malor, N.K. Malor, Possessing Nature, the Female in Frankenstein. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anne, Mel- Anne Miller. Uh, so you know, a lot of what she had was really cool. Like, And uh, what, what you guys talked about, Cooper, you talked a lot about how, um, I think you referenced a bit of it, like how it's just like Frankenstein's project is like getting rid of like the woman's ability to reproduce. Or at least, like, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Go on. Uh, there was some other stuff in there that was interesting. Um, how he fears his refusal to make a wife for the monster, like, is, like, uh, is showing, like, he fears fem- female sexuality as such. Because he fears that she might uh, prefer ordinary humans to the monster <laughs> and have her way with them. So he's, like, afraid of, like, her raping his fellow man. Because she's is, uh, also like eight feet tall uh, and super strong. Right, yes. Yeah, she could just have her way with the townsfolk, townsmen, I should say. Which, uh, yeah, absolutely scared of a strong, scared of a strong woman, so to speak. Right. And, uh. Because Elizabeth is kind of like that docile, quiet entity. Right. 
And then he talks about, well, there's another part that she talked about how, uh, uh, how Frankenstein killing, or I'm sorry, Frankenstein's monster killing, um, Elizabeth was kind of, a. What was it? It was, it was think of the what I wrote this down. It was like thinking of the creature as a kill, killing Elizabeth as um, an instrument of Frankenstein's most potent desire to destroy female productive power, which was super cool. Um, and uh, the the one thing I didn't really like, I thought was kind of like okay. Like, <laughs> come on now it's like there, there was a part in the oh i'm serious like it was, it was kind of i had i had two or three of those so i went too damn but like there was there was a part in the very beginning when she talks about how uh how when the monster presents himself to the delacy family and they're like oh no like you're ugly we don't want anything to do with you what the hell and uh she said something like uh perhaps like i, I don't know the exact words she put it into but it, it's couched in language like this where it's like perhaps the uh mother presence like perhaps the mother figure who would have welcomed him in despite his ugliness and like showered him in her arms and like listened to the creature was not there and it's like i don't know if like any other human being in that house would have been like oh oh just everyone calm down he's an eight foot tall man who we can see his blood vessels made from human (laughs) dead parts Right, like, oh, this is nothing to be worried about. <laughs> I do remember he that part. He just needs a hug. Yeah, I do remember that part. I remember thinking the same yeah. thing. But, I mean, other than that, I thought it was really cool. Like, yeah, um, she talked about this novel as being a feminist novel, and I don't know what you guys thought about that, but, like, at first I was like, Wah. but, like, as she as she went on to it, 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 it kind of made sense, like, I mean, it, it, I thought what I have written down here is if it's going to be considered a feminist novel, it can only be considered so through its reflections on the failures of a patriarchal, selfish uh, value system. Yes. That, you know, good. Frankenstein is kind of – Frankenstein is like the embodiment of basically and, – Yeah, and like I mentioned before, I think uh, this this period of writing was really obsessed with femininity being parallel to nature and man and society being parallel to kind of man. When in regards to like feminist writings, mm. I would like to say too that that currently I think that's problematic. But uh, as far as fetishizing, it's still sort of fetishizing women in a way. Totally right. But, not saying that like I. I no 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 right. no not not to air. Yeah yeah I got you. Yeah. Totally, it is problematic because then you're like overly it be it becomes this over idealization of an idea of what a woman should be. Yeah. Yes. That you kind of, you plant seeds into, or you cultivate or tend, and it's like more, more pure. Yeah. Right, right, right. Which is just as fucked up as like, I don't know, maybe it, it, it's fucked up in a different way. It's still fucked up. Then like just repressing them outright. Yeah. Also reinforcing gender in general, but uh, yeah, true that. Reinforcing oh the stereotypes. A big part of this book I don't think we've talked about is its parallels to the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Um, oh yeah, the famous British poem. Yeah. The whole structure of the Frankenstein novel is structured just like the the rhyme of the the the, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. 
the idea of, of having an albatross hanging by your neck and being forced to go through your life telling your, your tale of woe to anybody who you meet. Um, and then it's, and then she quotes it oh. and brings it up time and time again. Um, yeah. I think that's an interesting idea because the rhyme of the ancient mariner is sort of similar in the fact that it was, it was a prideful man who shot down the albatross that then brought on the ruination of his ship and all its crewmates and forced him into like a life of, of, of horror and whatnot. Um, which definitely parallels Walton at the beginning. Oh yeah, Walton is like because in in the poem, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, it's a bridegroom who the man forces to listen to his tale. In this case, it's Walton who is who is right. made to listen to his tragic story. Also, a fun fact is that Coleridge came to the Shelley's home and uh, iterated the entire poem in person in their living room, which is probably pretty powerful for her as a young girl. Right. I remember reading that in one of the footnotes yeah. in my edition. How long? How long is that poem? I've never read it, but it's got to be long. Yeah, that's like crazy. 20, 20 pages, I think. Oh, okay, okay. Really, Cooper? Yeah, it was excessive. <laughs> I had some edits for him, but it's a beautiful yada, poem. Yada, yada. <laughs> <laughs> we touched on a lot of the good stuff in those essays. I believe we did. Yes. Uh, is there anything else, any other pressing issues people were wanting to discuss about it? I was just telling Phil when I was in Billings last that I've been on a, a real serious science fiction kick. And so, and I've, I've always kind of heard Frankenstein being ref, like referenced as sort of the, the first science fiction novel. Um, and it's interesting because it, it did create or help create a very real and poignant genre that is sci-fi. But also the story that she's created has spawned a lot of really amazing science fiction books. And one that I could recommend if you like this idea would be to go and read Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 Space Odyssey. Or I suppose watch the just as fantastic Stanley Kubrick movie of the same name. But it also deals with the idea of man usurping woman's ability to create child um, to his downfall. And I think 2001 Space Odyssey does a fantastic job of continuing... Um, Mary Shelley's idea of what what the harm is and and not just man versus woman and man versus uh, birth but the idea of just usurping nature the idea of trying to somehow um, uh, redirect the current of, of nature and it will always inevitably be to your downfall to do that is there like a is there some feedback going on yeah yeah I hear some it's gone. Okay. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Uh, on that point, Cooper, about being the first science fiction novel, I, I think also that plays to that effect is the idea of the like advanced technological abilities or advanced like scientific methods to be able to do stuff like creating life from dead matter. And that's kind of like the basis of, you know, a lot of sci-fi stuff, which is, you know, all about uh, humans' relation to new technology and or the evolving technologies of the time. Yeah, or it's it's the idea of, yeah, like you said, um, uh, diagnosing a problem in your present and then um, sending it forward in time. In this case, um, Mary Shelley witnessed the sort of realization that, that electricity plays a large part in 
in life as we know it um, and in humans and animals alike. And so she she saw that and then decided to extrapolate it into a a horror story. Um, so that's where it that's where that's why it sort of sits as the first ever sci-fi book is its ability to um, take a modern uh, discovery and then prognosize or diagnose a, a solution to the problem. Um, <clears throat> I was really I so uh, Netflix just put out a. Uh, like dramatization of Ted Kaczynski's capture and trial. Um, and I've always been really interested with uh, Ted Kaczynski and the Unabomber thing. Um, he was a good old Montana boy at, at the end, right? Living in Helena. Yeah, he was out in Lincoln in a cabin with no running water or electricity. But his whole thing was warning us about uh, technology and uh, and how how technology right, ends up definitely. we end up being subservient to it and uh, <laughs> because you have you have all of his manifestos, don't you? Printed out <laughs> and, and your bedroom walls. Uh, no, my basement. I have to keep it. In my <laughs> but um, I actually did just order his manifesto online, though. I was gonna. <laughs> You fucking, dude, dude. Well, you're on the list. Did you not learn any lessons from fucking Dr. <laughs> Frankenstein? No, I did. I'm taking seriously the warning. Um, but he, because he warns about us being subservient to technology. And <laughs> like I said earlier, or and like Cooper was talking about, like the artificial intelligence thing is like a sort of real issue now. Like you have Hawkins, like people who study it. Did you guys read about that thing? Uh, Google's working on AI and they were teaching it language games and it started coming up with its own rules and it was using like these words in ways that they hadn't taught it and they shut it down. Like they pushed a big red button because they weren't sure how quickly it would get out of hand. Right. Didn't it? Didn't oh my it God. I did not hear about any of this. This scares the yeah, shit did, out of didn't me. Didn't it try to communicate with another program? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Oh. That was what other dude. <laughs> no, this is uh, Phil. Phil, I'm glad you said that. I don't know enough about it. Um, a coworker. At, well, I, I mean, a coworker just told me about this, and just kind of mentioned it on the fly, and I was like, "Well, that's that's nuts." No, artificial yeah, intelligence has not been created. I want to say that artificial intelligence has no. not been created yet. The program was still just an algorithm that the that it's that it was entirely based off of, which is still not considered AI. I'm not saying that it's AI. I'm just saying that the people working on AI are very conscious of the fact that it could get out of hand and yeah. it'd be exponential. Like and whether or not it's like true AI or not yet, they're touching on like areas of that. Right. And they're right. even like putting up boundaries to keep a sort of AI from happening. Right. Like in that case, when it starts doing its own language games, you could call that like a unique thought in some capacity. And like they shut it down after that, so there's there's a point where we don't want them to have like their own agency. We don't want them, uh, but I mean, <laughs> this has also been a theme of people have been afraid of the idea of AI since the '50s. You can read like early '50s sci-fi, and the big bad guy is artificial intelligence. I'm not that. I'm not saying that because it's an old fear; it's an irrational one. But. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm curious to see it, and and right now it's still a theory. It's still it's still a theoretical concept. The idea of of a computer being able to achieve 
um, actual intelligence. So Google is the new day Dr. Frankenstein. We're, we're their good friend, the consumer. And we are Clerval <laughs> waiting to be uh, snuffed out. By the way, this podcast <laughs> is not sponsored by Google. Or icebergs. Or icebergs. No, 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 no. It is sponsored by icebergs. The answer. Shut it the fuck up. It is sponsored by icebergs, actually. <laughs> Waste books cannot be bought. Just kidding. We'll take whatever money you guys want to give us. <laughs> yeah, but seriously, give us something, please. Well. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about a lot, guys, and I think this is a really good discussion on a classic novel. A very classic novel. Classic. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll start with closing thoughts then, since this was my nomination this time. Uh, I'm really glad we read it. I got to read it again and that we all got to discuss it because um, it's, you know, it's a great work to read. And uh, like you know, we were talking, it's kind of the foundations of those sci-fi and horror and ideas. And I think Mary Shelley's writing is you know, really good. She's definitely got a pretty good um, handle on language. And I just enjoyed the kind of absurdness sometimes of the monster scenes where, you know, Frankenstein's just running away and yelling at this big monster. And I think some of those things kind of captivated me. So, yeah, those are my thoughts. I liked it. And I would definitely recommend it to anybody who is not familiar with the source material of Frankenstein because it's so much different from any kind of pop culture idea. Okay, uh, I'll go next. Uh, this was uh, much different uh, than the previous version I read. I, I enjoyed reading the unabridged, unillustrated version. Uh, I felt it gave me a much <laughs> much more complete picture of what was going on. Uh, the, the pictures were helpful, I will say, in the last version, but... Uh, How did you read it without the picture, Dan? Uh, it, it took a very long time. <laughs> I had to have a sketchbook nearby. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I had to draw figures. <laughs> I got a map. Oh, but uh, in all seriousness, yeah, it was great. It was a uh, first time reading the real version. It was great. I'd recommend it to anyone. It's a quick read. For being as, uh, you know, uh, old-fashioned i guess you could say now but uh, old-fashioned as a language is it, it really does read pretty quick and it's you know decently mm-hmm. short now, yeah yep yeah, 10 out of 10 would recommend <laughs> i can go next uh this is my first time reading it i enjoyed it thoroughly uh it is probably the most important romantic novel of the romantic period that exists and the fact that it's also written by a woman makes it even more interesting as far as getting a new perspective and historical era. Uh, obviously it doesn't read as it's, it's not Harry Potter uh, reading level, but it's uh, definitely, it's definitely enjoyable. I recommend it just for how important this is uh, as a text in world literature, but also because uh, I'm recently I've recently watched the new season of Black Mirror, and it touches on a lot of similar uh, issues about uh, creating intelligence and the responsibility of that creation. Mm-hmm. So I I made a little, some parallels there parallels there, and 
obviously its take on feminist issues is very, very pertinent. Uh, and the writing is, is, is absolutely stellar at times where the Frankenstein's monster is, uh, is communicating his ideas in this sort of, sort of Miltonic, Milton-like, uh, delivery and the part and the parts at the end are also how it's wrapped up has some really great uh excerpts as well so definitely recommend it uh and it was a wonderful experience full stop i i also love this is a great book it's it's great full stop there um it's vastly important and i think you can tell that in reading it even today um it has a sense of I don't know. So there, there's a lot of really beautiful poetry um, and beautiful passages, you know, prose passages in the book. I know we kind of talked about its antiquated style of writing, but uh, like Jordan said, there really is some really beautiful passages in there. Um, I I think that even beyond the idea of the fear of artificial intelligence, it brings up a lot of questions about what we have today and sometimes take for granted. The idea of like organ donation. Um, the idea of like bioengineering, I think this book sort of precipitated all of that and begs the question of, of how far we're willing to go before we all turn in horror at what we've created. Um, bioterrorism and, and, and all this sort of tampering with biology. I think it's a sort of cautionary tale, um, but also a beautiful love story. Um, very erotic. I uh, would highly suggest <laughs> to those interested in the alternative to your everyday boy meets girl erotica. A be- beautiful love story between a boy and his monster. That's what I'm saying. This is not, this is this is the new this is the new one. The boy meets ghoul. <laughs> ten out of ten. Ten out of ten would iceberg reprove. I mean, what? Um. Okay, so I I wanted to read something just to talk, like. To give an example, I don't think we've read anything, right? Uh, so yeah, that's kind of unforgivable. So here's a here's a cool. We've quote. been so heated in discussion. We have been heated. In, it's good, but I did want to get a little of the language in. So this is an ex- excerpt from the monster's story, um, basically like his first year or so on Earth alive. He's in the cottage at this point um, and is watching the family. Uh, and I think it just shows a good example of like his kind of sensitivity. And uh, yeah, anyway, um, here goes. I spent the winter in this manner. The gentle manners and beauty of the cottagers greatly endeared them to me. When they were unhappy, I felt depressed. When they rejoiced, I sympathized in their joys. I saw few human beings besides them, If and if any other happened to enter the cottage, their harsh manners and rude gait only enhanced to me the superior accomplishments of my friends. The old man, I could perceive, often endeavored to encourage his children, as sometimes I found that he called them to cast off their melancholy. He would talk in a cheerful accent with an expression of goodness that bestowed pleasure even upon me. Agatha listened with respect, her eyes sometimes filled with tears, which she endeavored to wipe away unperceived. But I generally found that her countenance and tone were far more cheerful after having listened to the exhortations of her father. It was not thus with Felix. He was always the saddest of the group, and even to my unpracticed senses, 
he appeared to have suffered more deeply than his friends. But if his countenance was more sorrowful, his voice was more cheerful than that of his sister, especially when he addressed the old man. So it's just a little window that he had into like a human life that, yeah, ended up being his family. Basically, he learned everything almost from these people. uh, And then he tried to reach out and they rejected him. Um, Right. Except for the blind man initially, because Um, obviously he couldn't see him. So I just, I like this story as a, I guess, kind of as an exercise in sympathy, because um, I... I do think that the monster is pretty much born like a blank slate and uh, even despite like a traumatic entry where his like creator rejects him outright, um, he ends up like having a pretty decent disposition, uh, but then continues to be uh, sort of literally and figuratively bludgeoned by human insensitivity and... uh, that makes him evil. I that's my argument for this book, and I like, I like it for that story that it pick it uh, paints of that and just kind of massaging our uh, sympathy impulses just to see like. But um, yeah, I would say ten out of ten too. Good job, Mary. Yeah, Shelley. I'm glad we all got to read it. That's a great one. Okay. Do we all give it? Did we all give it ten out of ten? I think we all gave it. A I gave mine an iceberg out of iceberg. <laughs> ten icebergs. So now it's it's part of our golden. It's it's our it's a golden book member. Oh God! Do we have to? Should we have some kind of waste certification? Ten out of ten icebergs. We should actually do an iceberg. Oh my God! System. Thank you, Phil. Yes, please. And Cooper, please get on making us iceberg shirts. Oh God! <laughs> iceberg, just, I will. We just need an iceberg. It'll just say right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Our calling card for for everybody. Right. 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 Well, uh, does, I think that's about it for this novel, then, guys. And right. right. I guess Put her we away. Say goodbye Lock, to the fans. Lock her up in your vault. To the screaming fans. Of books. Spoiler, the monster's packing some heat. (laughs) (laughs) I think we have to end on that. Bye. 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 Another waste books in the books. Thanks for hanging out. Um, Next month we'll be reading Dune by Frank Herbert. So we're going to ride the sci-fi train a little bit. Uh, Rather, we're going to read the first half. So that's through... uh, Oh, shoot. Exactly half as many pages as are in the narrative portion of your book, uh, depending on the edition. Um, In other words, there's a chapter... My edition is about 480 pages long, and on page 236, I have a chapter that begins... At the age of 15, he had already learned silence, which is sick. But anyway, read up to that point, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll finish it next uh, the next time. Uh, so yeah, that should be fun. Um, music this time is by the Montana band Golden Hour. 
um, some young guys who sound really good. This is from an EP, Demo Days. The track is called Beverly. Beverly. 